Thank you, Emily. Okay. So, hopefully, we're all very patient and tolerant and not getting upset about the tiny bit of redundancy and uh, duplication, repetition encountered in these readings. Tiny is a little bit of an understatement. <laughs> but hopefully each version adds something to the prior versions. So let's start tonight with uh, the uh, excerpt from a book called Minding Closely, which is one of the two for tonight. And it presents the sort of background for Shamatan Vipassana and uses the analogy or, or uh, starts from the example of the Buddha's own enlightenment, which I thought is a, a helpful reference point and an interesting thing. Uh, for us to know in general, it's like what what was his enlightenment, content of his enlightenment, and uh, and then what do we know about the basis of that, and how does that impact our practice? So we're on page ninety three of this book, Minding Closely, subtitled "The Four Applications of Mindfulness." So it's it's focused on the four foundations of mindfulness, which Alan Wallace considers to be a vipassana practice which is not the common to all teachers in the tradition of Buddhism. There's varying views on that, but that's his view. In the second paragraph, he says, Vipassana is not a standalone practice. The path is the cessation of suffering asserted in the Four Noble Truths is depicted as a pyramid. <laughs> I've never seen any depiction of it actually as a pyramid used, but conceptually it's a pyramid. And uh, the foundation is ethics. So, and uh, so he goes on to stress that at some length, which I think is very helpful because we don't often see that and pay attention to that, but it's definitely uh, uh something that's essential. Resting upon ethics, our mental balance and samadhi, constituting a platform. He loves this term, platform, the shamatha platform. And resting upon this platform is vipassana, which severs the root of mental afflictions. And he gives this uh, ancient analogy. Skipping ahead onto the next page, 94. It's uh, unrealistic to think that without any development of ethics and samadhi, one could still practice vipassana and achieve the same result. And it goes on to some discussion of how common mindfulness and vipassana or vipassana have become these days and how they can be very useful, but that it's not really Buddhist practice without the whole context of uh, ethics and the framework of samadhi or mindfulness acting as the foundation for insight into suffering and its and the path to the cessation of suffering. And then on page 95 on the bottom, he gets right to our, one of our main questions. 
Finally, what degree of samadhi is sufficient? Can one disregard samadhi altogether in favor of practicing vipassana? Clearly not, or the Buddha would have not described the path as consisting of ethics, samadhi, and wisdom. Learned scholars in Theravadan debate this point and defend different views. I cannot end it, however. The Buddha's teachings give us a strong hint, such as in the wonderful account he gave to his followers after his enlightenment. Skipping the rest of that paragraph, at the age of 35, having experimented with all the major methods of his time for meditation he's talking about, or... or uh, deliverance, so to speak. He endured six years of great asceticism and accomplished deep samadhi. After that, the proverbial light bulb went on in the Buddha's head. And he, he was sort of uh, exasperated after six years, if you've ever read the account of the Buddha's life, where he'd perfected, studied, practiced, learned, studied, practiced, perfected, all the different teachings of all the different teachers that were available at the time period and exceeded the, the uh, uh, achievement of each of those teachers. And they kept saying, well, I've given you all I got. Please lead my lead the community, take over. <laughs> um, um, or you should go somewhere else because <laughs> there can't be two of us here. <laughs> I guess it was the implication. But... Uh, he realized that it still wasn't the end of suffering, these extremely high states of meditation. And so he has this memory of a time when he was a young lad. And uh, let's see, the quote is, I thought of a time when my Sakyan father, <laughs> Sakyan father is a little bit of a funny phrase. His father was the, a Sakyan, the head of the Sakyan clan. And... Uh, his father was working in the fields, which his father was a king and didn't often do. But it, once a year, there was this uh, ceremonial harvesting or plowing or planting season, and his father would be out there with everyone plowing the fields. And while he was working, the young uh, Siddhartha Gautama was sitting in the shade of a cool rose apple tree watching supposedly, and uh, slips into uh, the first samadhi, just like spontaneously. <laughs> All of a sudden, he's in the first samadhi. I entered into a boat in the first jhana, which is, uh, or jhana, state in Pali, which is accompanied by coarse and precise investigation, which is Alan's translation of these terms that I enunciated, I think, last week, where... Uh, usually they're called sustained and applied thought. But they're the first two of five dhyana or jhana qualities, and they're discursive. And the other five qualities are physical joy, mental joy, or bliss, and then equanimity or one-pointed concentration are the five. <clears throat> and uh, it is accompanied by well-being and bliss, born of seclusion. So all five are 
present, or, or actually all four of the five are present in the first dhyana. I thought, might this be the way to enlightenment? And following this memory, there came the recognition that this was the way to enlightenment. His father was performing a ritual spring plowing, and young Ga Prince Gautama was off duty. And let's see. Skipping ahead to, uh, let's see, contemplative prodigy. <laughs> um, but the, on the next page, 97, the first paragraph, the Buddha described this very profound state of samadhi, the first jhana, as accompanied by coarse and precise investigation. The mind is utterly controlled and settled in a state of equipoise that is nothing like a trance in which you cannot even think, sorry, you cannot think or function. To the contrary, in this state you can engage in general investigation or precise analysis, which is how Alan is translating these two types of discursive. Uh, and when I say discursive, discursive has the sense of a pejorative. You know, we always think of discursive as sort of fractured, disorganized, haphazard, uncontrolled thought. But these are very much the opposite. But they are thought conceptual thought. Uh, so general investigation and precise analysis. Your intelligence and conceptual abilities are fully available, but you're completely free of obsessive compulsive thinking. And the state is suffused with, suffused rather with a blissful well-being. It's not ecstasy or uh, teeth-chattering incapacitating bliss. <laughs> Being born of seclusion means the mind is withdrawn from the sense fields and compulsive ideation, resting naturally in balance. And when the mind is settled in such a state, the, called the first jhana, bliss arises from the na very nature of awareness. You're contacting the, the nature of your uh, fundamental awareness, which is the substrate consciousness, and bliss is one of those qualities of that consciousness. As he describes later, there's also a separation or temporary separation from the five hindrances of sensual attachment and sloth and delusion and avarice and jealousy. Um, at, the, at this age of 35, the Buddha remembers this spontaneous experience in, of his youth and recalling it, he, the thought arises, might this be the way to enlightenment? He was clearly referring to the first jhana the first of four stages within it, what is called the form realm. The dhyanas are uh, affiliated, synchronized, so to speak, with the stages of the, the f four realms, four stages of the form realm, one of the three realms of desire, form, and formless in the Buddhist cosmology. This state is imbued with discerning intelligence, blissful well-being, and a highly focused mind and uh, next paragraph following this thought the Buddha recognized this was indeed the way to enlightenment I'm happy to take this statement at face value he couldn't have said it more clearly he did not mention the second meditative stabilization let alone the formless absorptions in which the capacities for investigation and analysis are dormant so the second absorption those two faculties of investigation and analysis are left behind. He simply said that the first jhana was the way to enlightenment, 
and then very shortly thereafter the Buddha sits under the Bodhi tree after having received sustenance in the form of uh, um, rice gruel, what's it called? Um, I can't think of the Indian the term for the um, and he, the term is that I shall not move from the seat until I've achieved enlightenment and that's what he did. Uh, he went to the bathroom first before he said that. And the first jhana seems to have been his platform for launching into Vipassana. And this ultimately led him to what is called super mundane Vipassana, examination of all the facets of reality, directly liberating the mind. But in the first mundane Vipassana, was simply investigates certain critical aspects of the phenomenal world in which we live. The Buddha described his experiences during that night's three watches, each lasting about three hours. So I thought it was four hours. Uh, maybe he's off. Maybe I am. More likely I am. But anyway, he sits down as the sun is setting. And the first watch of the night, he immediately he settles immediately into samadhi. And from this platform, he directs his attention back in time to ascertain the circumstances in thousands of his previous lifetime. He starts reviewing his previous lifetimes. He goes back in this life to his birth and finds that with his uh, the ability of these jhanas, he can go back to prior existences of his continuum. And he sees one after another of his previous lifetimes until like thousands of them. And in this first exploration, the Buddha probed the history of his own mind stream and he declared that he saw with direct knowledge the vast sequence of his past innumerable beginningless lives. In the second watch of the night, he directs his attention panoramically, which is not really the panoramic awareness that Trump Rimshade speaks of, but is that uh, he's investigating the state of other beings. Are they similar to his? Do they have prior lifetimes as well? And he finds that they also had long histories and attends to their myriad past lives, multiplying, still, sorry, still applying mundane Vipassana. He examined the patterns in this massive database of the lives of myriad sentient beings, performing a meta-analysis of their actions and consequences. He writes a little little data program probably in C plus or plus plus or something and crunches the numbers and sees that everybody just has numerous lifetimes and the results uh, feed into what he calls the laws of karma the Sanskrit term means action. He saw that actions in one lifetime are like seeds sown that eventually give rise to consequences in later lifetimes. You can imagine you know, seeing thousands and thousands of lifetimes of millions and millions of beings and you start to see the patterns I mean if you could do that <laughs> you see the patterns of like you know people who kill people in one lifetime they have at some point in their future lifetimes they are killed or things like that and um they eventually give rise to consequences in later lifetimes, observe regular patterns of causal sequences from one lifetime to the next, and his experiential insights into rebirth and karma are significantly different from any of the views that were prevalent before his enlightenment. So here, Alan breaks from uh, uh, certain authors who say that the Buddha's uh, understanding and presentation of karma was not radically different from what was prevalent at the time, and he disagrees. 
So recent claims that he simply adopted these ideas from common belief of his era entirely spurious without any basis in historical fact. In the third watch of the night, he probes into the reality of suffering, its origin, the path, and the culmination. He directly realized the 12 links of dependent origination, super mundane, Vipassana, the mechanics of samsara and the path to liberation. As the sun rises, he achieves full enlightenment, the Buddha is the Buddha. He becomes the Buddha. His platform was the samadhi of the first dhyana. So that's uh, that's Alan's conclusion. Now, I circulated something recently to us before class tonight. Let's see if I can find it. What's today? Today's Tuesday. Uh, okay, here's a, a little compilation of uh, excerpts from a compilation of readings from the Pali Canon into a sketch of the Buddha's life that I found on this website, that if you're interested ever in finding sutras and searching on them by topic or name or whatever, this is an amazing resource, Access to Insight, as a database and translations of all of the, the suttas from the Pali Canon. Uh, so uh, you can read this later, all of it, uh, hopefully you will, but uh, he practices austerity, he realizes it's not working, and let's see, where is the part, okay here, so he remembers, let's see, I recall. Ah, <laughs> thank you, thank you, Henrietta. Please help me out here, guys. Just feel free to jump in and let me know what's not happening. So uh, here's this compilation I just circulated earlier this evening. Once I recall, my father was working. I remained in the first jhana. Rapture and pleasure born from the accompanied by directed thought and evaluation, which is another translation of those same two terms of types of thought. Could this be the path of awakening? And then, yes, this is the path of awakening. Uh, so they determine, so I see. He's been like really um, into austerity and <clears throat> harming the body and not letting anything pleasant happen physically to himself. And so he realizes that that's not the way and that he needs to nourish his body so that he can cultivate deep samadhi as the platform. And so he takes some food and um, his buddies think he's become a lush <laughs> after one bowl of rice gruel and they, uh, they abandon him. And... Uh, Let's see, he, uh, with the stilling of directed thought and evaluation, I entered and remain in the second jhana. So the Buddha describes going first into the first jhana. First, he has this memory of experiencing the first jhana, realizes that's the way. That The word that is not quite clear yet, whether it's the first jhana or jhana in general. 
And that to practice jhana, he realizes he needs sustenance. He gets the sustenance, he sits down, he goes into the first jhana, the second jhana, he goes into the third jhana, and then he goes into the fourth jhana. And um, let's see. When the mind was thus concentrated, purified, bright, unblemished, rid of defilement, and so forth, I directed it to the knowledge of recollecting my past lives. Now these these are from two different sutras. This is uh, Majima Nikaya 36, and then this one, penetrating the three knowledges during the three watches of the night, is from ah, it's from the same one, Majima Nikaya 36, Majimika Nikaya. So in that same sutra, he says this, when my mind was thus concentrated, and is following having achieved the fourth jhana. This one that this author has pieced together is from a different sutra. It sort of confuses things, but... So, for Alan to say that it's clear that it was just the first jhana as the platform, I find is a little weird. But I, I don't know. Anyway, the same description, the first watch of the night. Um... He reviews all of his past lives, and uh, the only the, the thing that Alan is picking up on is saying is that when the mind is thus concentrated, I directed it to the knowledge of recollecting my past lives. And Alan's claim, I believe, is that in the second jhana onward, you don't have those two types of thought sustained and applied and you need thought in order to have knowledge of your past lives. Here, so, can I, have you, I thought I remembered reading, hearing long ago, that he had gone up to the fourth and then went back down to the first or something like that. Do you remember that at all? That's when he achieves parinirvana. At his parinirvana, okay. he lies down. Okay. Yeah, I first thought the same thing, and then I realized, oh, that was the part of Nirvana. He goes up, he actually goes up to the eighth, the formless absorption, of the, the highest formless absorption, and then he comes back down to the fourth, and from the fourth, he exits into Pari Nirvana at his uh, passing away. So I think Alan's argument is that you need the active intellect to do this recollecting and this analysis of lifetimes and the data crunching that he did so skillfully. Yeah, for sure. So the way this is phrased um, in this quote, I directed it, his mind, my mind, to the knowledge of recollecting my past lives. The way that's phrased, it sounds like um, that it, it's not a spontaneous thing that that's an effort that um, is traditional or somehow well, there's knowledge of past lives is an important knowledge aspect. of past lives is one of the six super knowledges. And that was a tradition. It was a tradition that when you achieve the dhyanas, you have these different super knowledges of the divine eye. You can see things 
and hear things without limit. You can go through walls. You can you can multiply your body. You can uh-huh. things like that, and you have the knowledge of uh, past lives. So, so, so it wasn't just that he uh, spontaneously achieved that. He he directed himself towards that. Um, yeah, that is the saying? phraseology, and that is you're you're in harmony with Alan here on this point. Is that what you're saying? Is that it takes uh, sort of intention and yes. thought to do this? Yeah. And Alan's saying that's only present in the first dhyana, okay. and in the second and subsequent dhyanas, it's not that that level of intellectual activity is not really present. However. There is the question of like, how does one progress from the second to the third? There is there is an intellectual or a thought process that goes on that looks at the qualities of each dhyana as it's happening and notices the limitations of that state and realizes, well, if I let go of those limitations, I can achieve a higher dhyana. So, and that happens throughout all four. So... It's it's uh, not totally conclusive one way or another, but it is uh, an indication. Anyway, so here's the the uh, another translation of this source of um, what happens in the three watches of the night. And uh, let's see. <clears throat> he, he talks about how the Buddha was born in the perfect location in this civilization that had perfected the practice of samadhi. And he talks about uh, this guy Pythagoras, who's famous for the Pythagos, Pythagorean theorem, right? Everybody know the Pythagorean theorem? Who remembers their Pythagorean theorem? Come on. A or squared you. plus B squared equals C squared. All right. And what is A, B, and C? Uh, a is, we'll say, the height. B is length. C is the hypotenuse. Of? Something like that. <laughs> of what? Of a triangle, of sorry. Of any triangle? A right, a right triangle. A right triangle. As, it's like the right a, a right mindfulness. There's right triangles and there's wrong triangles. What is a right triangle? Yeah, describe it. Don't show it. It's like, what, tell me about a spiral staircase. Well, it goes like this. It has a ninety degree angle. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's a ninety degree angle. Anyway, he was famous for espousing reincarnation. And he like there's like records of him talking about like twenty past rebirths and so Alan talks a bit about him in that fashion, but says that none none of them were really known for samadhi. And then um I, I've I've read this thing, this book called The Symposium by Plato. I don't know if anyone's read this book, anything by Plato. Maybe you've read The Republic, but he also wrote this beautiful short work called The Symposium that's on the nature of truth and beauty. 
and it figures Socrates talking about the nature of truth and beauty. And in the in the book, Socrates, there's like this scene where Socrates is transfixed in like his neighbor's backyard. <laughs> you know, and the guy calls the cops, like this guy's what's this guy doing in my back? <laughs> no, but he's like clearly in Samadhi. And and so apparently this happened a lot. So I sent you a little snippet from some but he wrote a book about Socrates and the Path of Enlightenment. He recounts all this stuff about Socrates having these experiences of going into trance states and the resulting uh, powers that he had, like in, in the army and various things. Where, So anyway, just sort of interesting. Um, let's see, coming back to Alan... Uh, he talks about the mindfulness of the breath as one of the basic practices, calls it the sweet abode, which is a common phrase in the Theravadan tradition uh, that, that's used in ref reference to the practice of the contemplation of the breath or mindfulness of breathing in the sweet abode. And there's some, you'll, you may find like books or writings where that's the title of them, the sweet abode of the uh, breath the equilibrium and, and well-being that springs from contemplating the rise and fall of the breath. <clears throat> uh, let's see, on page 102, all-purpose vehicle. So this mindfulness of the breathing is like the all-purpose uh, platform or vehicle. And he goes through Briefly, the two different blessing sutras on the mindfulness of breathing, the Satipatthana Sutta, where the mindfulness of breathing is uh, the first four of like about 50 different practices that are enunciated in that sutra. And then he refers to a, another sutra called Anapanasati, which literally means the uh, mindfulness of uh, respiration sutta. Um, that's focused entirely on that and describes a practice of 16 different phases of working with the breath. And uh, Alan's view, which is not unanimous but is not uncommon, is that the first four phases are samadhi. Uh, most people view the whole 16 as being related to absorption practices, but he sees Vipassana in many places where others don't. Interestingly, uh, let's see, he recounts this uh, famous discourse where the Buddha meets, uh, that I talked about, I think this gentleman named Bahia encounters him, and uh, in the scene, there is only the scene, and uh, how important it is to have a, have a profound state of stability of mind as the basis for insight, so that insights can be uh, deep, penetrating, profound, and have impact into our mode of being, and not just be uh, sort of passing um, glimpses of things, but actually change our state of being. And... Um, He talks about it, the achievement of shamatha as being like the state of flow of somebody named... Now, 
this is on page 104. I was just sort of curious. Has anybody ever heard of this person and can pronounce their name? Sixenmihalia? That's worse than any Tibetan words I've ever seen. Achieving the first dhyana on page 105, the body's energy system is settled into a silky sweet state of balance. Everything is synchronized and uh, soothed and subdued and at the same time energized and clear. The mind is calm, settled into an ambrosial equilibrium, peaceful and sublime. Then he talks again about the uh, confusion about the first jhana that has generated the last 25 years, particularly in, in the West. He says European languages. And uh, talks about people who claim to have achieved jhana states, like on a weekend retreat. <laughs> And I love his sense of humor at the top of the next page where he like makes up this quote. I had I, I got this Diana, then I lost it, but it came back. And he says it sounds like a missing sock when you do your laundry, you know. Where do all those socks go? Uh, but the, the technical qualification of the of achieving the first Diana is twenty four hours. And so uh, if you haven't achieved that, then it doesn't qualify. Uh, free of obscurations, so what has subdued the hindrances, temporarily at least, and um, blissful well-being. On 108, towards the bottom, he says, the achievement of shamatha still occurs today, especially in the Tibetan tradition, and is virtually equated with the achievement of the first Dhyana, which is more accurately called access to the first jhana. This uh, refined refinement in the way of viewing the first jhana as having two parts to it that I talked about last week. Luminous glow. What do the obscurations obscure? Other than, of course, they obscure Buddha nature, <clears throat> but they also obscure something much more close to us, approximate this substrate consciousness, the Ali Vishnana, which is the relative ground state, so I'm on page 109, from which the psyche emerges each time we awaken, each, and into which the psyche dissolves each time we fall asleep. And when you access the substrate consciousness clearly and vividly and wakefully, by way of shamatha, it's like falling deep asleep while remaining luminously awake. And the state is imbued with the three universal qualities of bliss, luminosity, and non-conceptuality. And let's see, that's about it. So that was a little background on the sort of practice, Shamatha Vipassana. I thought now we could go through the other reading from contemplative science called uh, Shamatha. And go through the stages of the development of shamatha quickly, and then we'll end up at the similar place that we've left off at a couple of times, and we can go through these nebulous practices of natural mindfulness and and uh, released mindfulness and so forth. So, on this article. I think it's page 9. Now, I circulated initially without pages, so mine doesn't have pages, but 
think it's page nine of the PDF, and it's uh, the page that's called the stages of development of shamatha. Guys, able to find that? I'm sorry. Which uh, article are you in? It's called Shamatha, and it's from a book called Contemplative Science, The Nature and Purpose of Shamatha. Others have that. And which, was, which section did you say you were on, or page or I think it's PDF page 9, and it's called The Stages of Development of Shamatha. Right, okay, got it. So skipping the first two paragraphs, uh, according to the Buddhist tradition, it's very difficult to attend continuously to an object that doesn't change, which is sometimes why they say the breath is so good for beginners is because it moves, and so it makes it easier to connect with initially. But the ability can be developed through sustained training during the successive stages of shamatha. Even the presence of mindfulness and introspection is no guarantee progress will be made for one may recognize the presence of laxity or excitation, which are the two obstacles to mindfulness and introspection, respectively, and still fail to take steps to counteract it. And mindfulness and introspection are the antidotes to laxity and excitation, respectively. The remedy is the cultivation of the will. So the first time he's really mentioned that is that the intention to uh, progress in our practice is really the most important thing. And uh, it starts from the first time that we ever think about meditating. And uh, it's, it's helpful to cultivate it throughout the day, you know. And, and sort of make it a pivotal aspect of our life by cultivating the intention or the will to meditate, which is closely associated with intervention. Is there a word that, which word does that associate with? In, uh, I, think it's, I think it's Chanda, C-H-A-N-D-A, which is sometimes... Translated as aspiration or determination, and would be uh, the first of the four miraculous feet, the four f feet of miraculous horse or whatever it's called. Mm -hmm. Does that ring any bells? <laughs> yes. Was <laughs> uh, the mental process? that it intentionally engages the mind with various types of objects and activities. In this case, whether laxity or excitation occurs, the mind is stimulated by the will to intervene in order to eliminate them. The relationship of the mind and the will is likened to that of iron that moves under the influence of a magnet. The will to eliminate laxity and excitation is aroused by recognizing the disadvantages of succumbing to those hindrances and the advantages of overcoming them. Thus, the, two initial, the initial two phases of this training are accomplished by learning about the nature of the practice and contemplating the benefits of pursuing it. Now, he's starting to go through the stages of shamatha, and he's referring to the powers of shamatha. So the initial two phases are the two of the nine stages, and um, learning is the first of the six powers. So I'm going to show this little chart that I circulated. Let's see. 
So here we have uh, stages and characteristics of shamatha, five obstacles, eight antidotes, six powers, learning, contemplating, mindfulness, awareness, introspection, or shashan, exertion, enthusiasm, and familiarity are the six powers. I think you're familiar probably with the obstacles and antidotes, and uh, you're familiar with the nine stages, and then there's this affiliation of them with each other, as well as these other characteristics of the type of experience, of movement, approach, familiarity, stability, and perfection. These five uh, stages of the analogy of a river or waterfall going to the ocean, which in this case was presented as a mountain instead of an ocean. <laughs> The ocean turns into a mountain. <laughs> and uh, we have three levels and three qualities of shamatha. Stability, vividness kicks in at uh, stage four, close placement, and then strength or power kicks in the, from six onward. And then there's, you may also have seen reference to the four mental applications or uh, types of engagement. One is like sporadic engagement, which here through concentration, um, inter interrupted engagement means uh, um, happens, but it's not continuous. The third stage is continuous engagement with the object, but still effortful. And the last stage is effortless engagement. At the outset, one is encouraged to practice for many short sessions each day with as few distractions between as possible. And this is a great thing to do if you go on a retreat, solitary retreat ever, which is also the best, one of the best ways of uh, progressing in your path. Then it's highly recommended that you do a lot of short sessions. He's, he's into this 24-minute session thing, which is... Um, has a term in, in the Pali and Sanskrit called Anga, A-N-G-A, and uh, there's 60 of 60 24 minute segments in a day, which, if you remember your mathematics, is the reverse of uh, 24 60 minute segments in a day. So there's uh, 24 hours in a day, 60 minutes, and there's 60 24 minute segments, and so. They use this 24 minutes as like a, a very solid length of time for starting out with as, as being able to uh, stay still and concentrated and focused without like slipping into lethargy or, uh, or just like the, the practice getting totally chaotic. And then once you stabilize that period of time, then you increase it. <clears throat> As a result of persevering the practice, one ascends to the second state of, sh of shamatha of the nine continuous attention. During this phase, the mind is still subject to so much excitation that the attention is more often away from the object than on it. But at times, one experiences brief periods of attentional continuity for up to a minute or so, which can seem like a very long time initially when we first achieve like something like a minute of being actually present with the breath. 
In other words, occasionally for up to a minute, the attention does not completely disengage from the mental object. But even during those periods of sustained attention, the mind is still prone to excitation, which manifests as peripheral manifests rather as peripheral noise or mental chit chat. So we all, I think, know this experience where you feel like you're connected to the breath, and yet there's like uh, something like subconscious gossip or other discursive activity going on like around you. <clears throat> Experientially, it seems as if the attention is still fixed on the image while other thoughts and impressions come to mind. However, it seems more likely the attention is disengaged from the mental image during those interludes, but they're so brief that there seems to be an unbroken continuity of attention on the object. Anyway, at this point, only a gross level of attentional stability has been achieved, and that is interspersed with gross excitation periods in which the meditative object is absent entirely with further training when gradually reduces the number of sessions per day while increasing their duration and it's neat on retreat like to do 24 minutes and then to break and like maybe do walking meditation or to read or um, you eat your meal or something and then you do another 24 minute session but it's very helpful 24 minutes short break 24 minutes short break very very helpful um, the emphasis is always on maintaining the highest quality of attention rather than opting for mere quantity of time spent this is different than what Trunk Rinpoche did with students uh, during his lifetime he had us meditate for many many hours for long periods of time and we were by and large sort of slogging through the muck and the mire of the dark ages of our mind and there was not this emphasis on short and sweet and clear and crisp and he was doing something different and uh, in my humble opinion and uh, we can talk about it, but he was, uh, I think, having us learn about and process the material, the mental baggage from early on that we all carry with us. Whereas uh, the approach, the more traditional approach is to sort of sidestep that mental baggage and try to achieve shamatha and pierce through with Vipassana without having actually processed the baggage and uh, many many teachers find or students people find that without having processed their baggage it's very hard to do that sort of straight and narrow progress and it's it's actually a formal practice in the Nyingma Dzogchen tradition where one processes one's experience of the six realms. Rimshe from Rimshe talked quite frequently about the six realms that we all go through. And so when we did like one day what he called Ninton's all day practice of nine hours, you would experience at least six realms, probably more. <laughs> There's also a lot about making friends with boredom. Yes. That was his key for progressing, actually, as opposed to, yeah. So it's, it's interesting the difference, the differences. That was a, a very sort of Nyingma approach or Dzogchen approach, just like using boredom, getting totally bored of the whole mental world, as opposed to trying to sort of uh, 
push the mental activity away by focusing very concentratedly, which is presented in the larger tradition or a more common tradition. Let's see. Um, also, uh, Eric, mm -hmm. I'm wondering sure. if that also um, was a way, there's that term spiritual bypassing. Um, yes. Sort of if you haven't processed that. Yeah, it comes back to bite you later on. Yeah, and you, or you could just sort of ignore it. Yeah. yeah, for some period of time, this idea that we use meditation as a, as a, uh, uh, as the uh, salvation for the solution to everything, mm -hmm. and ignore aspects of our life that later on fall apart. Uh, let's see. The next stage is called resurgent attention, at which point the attention is mostly on the object. Its continuity needs only to be reinstated now and then when gross excitation occurs. And there are more frequent periods of sustained attention of longer duration. When one accomplishes the fourth, close attention, the mind is stabilized to the point that one does not entirely disengage from the object for the full duration of each session. Third and fourth states are achieved chiefly by the cultivation of mindfulness. Going back to our chart, mindfulness is the main uh, power through the third and fourth of the nine stages. And uh, let's see. <clears throat> And the principal emphasis up to that point is on development of tensional stability rather than vividness. Uh, in fact, you find if they strive initially for enhanced vividness, that effort itself will actually undermine the development of stability. Interesting uh, observation that may be helpful in your own practice, that if you try to, to uh, go for vividness or clarity or a sort of the knowing quality over the stability quality, it will activate the mind and the stability will disperse until stability is strong. With the attainment of close attention, the power of mindfulness is well exhibited, gross attention stability achieved, and the mind is free of gross excitation. Particularly at this point in the training, it's very easy to fall into complacency. We saw this last week, feeling of having already achieved the aim of sustained voluntary attention, which is this sort of technical term for shamatha. In reality, one is still very much subject to subtle excitation, both gross and subtle laxity. And if one fails to recognize these flaws, continued practice may actually impair one's intelligence. You make yourself more and more stupid. <laughs> stupid meditation. You become like an animal. And he talks about his favorite guy, William James. And skipping that part. Uh, Let's see. The fifth attentional state, the next paragraph, called tamed attention, and the sixth, called pacified or achieved with the force of introspection. 
the fourth power, with which one closely monitors the meditative process, watching for occurrence of laxity and subtle excitation in the state of taming. The fifth gross laxity in which vividness of the attention is missing is dispelled, and in the phase of uh, pacification, the sixth subtle excitation is eliminated so that even peripheral distractions disappear, leaving only who's left? Pete and repeat are in a boat. Pete jumps out. Who's left? <laughs> so we, we got rid of uh, gross and laxity and excitation and subtle excitation, leaving subtle laxity, right? By this time, an increasing sense of joy and satisfaction arises while meditating seventh and eighth. States are fully pacified and single-pointed or achieved by the force of enthusiasm or exertion or en energy. In the seventh state, even subtle laxity in which the full potency of attentional vividness is not attained is eliminated. And in single-pointed attention, the eighth, the mind can dwell with utter stability of vividness on its chosen object for hours on end without the occurrence of even subtle laxity or excitation. And let's see. William James again with the attainment of the ninth stage attentional balance accomplished with the force of familiarization which um, is is uh, sort of a, uh, relaxing into natural the natural state of mind and not continuing to force the mind to do one thing or another um only an initial impulse of will and effort is needed at the beginning of each session, and after that uninterrupted sustained attention occurs effortlessly. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> Moreover, the engagement of the will, effort, and intervention at this point is actually a hindrance. Or further engagement of them, and it's time to let the natural balance of the mind maintain itself without interference. The next page, even at the state of attentional balance, shamatha has not been fully achieved. At the ninth stage, the, there's a further stage called shamatha after the ninth. Its attainment is marked first by dramatic shift in the nervous system, characterized briefly by a strange but not unpleasant sense of heaviness and numbness at the top of the head. <laughs> this is followed by an obvious increase in mental and physical pliancy. Uh, which is a translation of Xinjiang, Xinjiang in Tibetan, entailing a cheerfulness and lightness of the mind and a buoyancy and lightness of the body. Consequently, experiences of physical bliss and mental bliss arise, which are temporarily quite overwhelming. But that rapture fades, and with its disappearance, the attention is sustained firmly and calmly upon the object, and shamatha is fully achieved. The above claims concerning shift nervous system and its consequences have to do with first-hand empirical physiological experiences. It remains to be seen how or whether such a theory and the corresponding physiological changes can be detected objectively and understood in modern scientific terms. Yeah, I'm waiting like for them uh, for uh, the guy in Wisconsin, Madison, Richie Davidson, to like have somebody achieve shamatha while he's all hooked up or she to those electrodes. But the achievement of shamatha when disengages the attention from the object, 
Interestingly, the disengage from the object in the entire continuum of attention is focused single-pointedly, non-conceptually, and internally at or on or in the substrate consciousness, but drawn fully from the physical senses. Thus, for the first time in the training, one does not attempt to recall an object or engage with it. One's consciousness is now left in an absence of appearances. An experience is said to be subtle and difficult to realize. Only aspects of sheer awareness, luminosity, and joy of the mind remain without the intrusion of any sensory objects. So he's not the only one that describes that experience. I'll find a few other references and share them with you that describe the same experience of like the object disappearing. <clears throat> Any thoughts that arise do not persist, they don't proliferate, they vanish of their own accord like bubbles, and what is no sense of one's own body, it seems as if one's mind has become indivisible with space, or remaining in this absence of appearances, even though it is still impossible for a single moment of consciousness to observe itself. And this is a, this is this issue in the Buddhist tradition of uh, that many traditions in Buddhism say that the, the mind cannot have itself as its object. So therefore you have to review the past. The moment of consciousness may recall the experience immediately preceding moment and so forth. Each moment having no other appearance or objects. That's the due to the to Each moment the experiential effect is that of consciousness it feels like consciousness is apprehending itself. Rob? I have a question about the mind not being able to ha have itself as an object. Yes. Well, realization is recognizing the true nature of mind. Yes. So is that the, the tr true nature of the mind at the at the current moment or the true nature of the mind in its last moment is, is sort of the question. Um, and the true nature of the mind is that it's without substance or entity. So there's also, you know, there's different, different ways that the true nature of the mind is expressed or that realization is expressed and it's often expressed as, as um, a not finding that the true nature of the mind is not identifiable or findable. So the whole issue of being its own object sort of dissolves into itself. But um, this is a problem for Prasangikas, and uh, uh, you'll see in Mahamudra and Dzogchen that the, the mind observing itself is a very common practice, a very commonly stated, and they don't seem to have any problem describing it and talking about it that way. But prasangikas make a big point of this, and Alan is very much a prasangika, having been uh, sort of born and raised in the Galupa tradition, even well, though he's now well, in Inga. we taught that the past doesn't exist. <laughs> so how can you look at something that doesn't exist? Exactly. I mean, but, 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 but again, all of the all this languaging just makes makes the inconceivability of it all sort of more vivid. It is funny that he dwells on that he keeps repeating this thing. It's like um, 
yeah, how could if the past, you know, it's the past that doesn't exist, and so clearly you're you're looking at the memory of the past, which is a present moment of mind. So you're looking at it. So that whole, yeah, the whole thing is sort of funny. Yeah, it gets it gets really wiggly squiggly, you know. Um, yeah. I just heard something that uh, it takes a quarter of a second for the. Uh, the neurons from when a thought starts to when it sort of lands that takes a quarter of a second so it seems like a long time to me so there's actually quite there's this actual passage of time that happens so that's kind of interesting in this context it is the past like by the time it lands it happened in the past you know that's but so cool that 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 was like a neuro neurophysiologist was, yeah yeah was it was like that? on a science Neuroscience. So she she knows what the oh, thought yeah. is. Well, yeah, I know. Yeah, other, neurophysiologically, that's the most interesting part of that. Statement. Yeah, right. <laughs> and the other interesting part of that is that somehow our our bodily senses pre go ahead of us receiving the thought. That's the like other we'll thing. We'll move our arm before our thought to move the arm. Yeah, it's it's really bizarre stuff. Well, yeah, yeah so, that's all about the, the the discursive thought actually being a backseat commentator, not the driver. Well, well uh, to clarify, the two of you are talking about the decision to move your arm is said to happen after one actually begins to initiate the movement. Now, the identification of the decision as a neurophysiological phenomena is a curious one to begin with, but uh, this is something that is has been discovered and written about in the in the scientific literature you'll see you know you'll see references to this in the Buddhist writings, and you can easily google this and find articles on it, which is fascinating that uh yeah, you know, they've come up I'm with reading, this. I'm reading Daniel Dennett right now, who's basically a materialist. He 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 doesn't believe in mind as a separate sort of entity at all, and he's making the same point that that you know our subconscious makes things happen well before the conscious decision is in effect. You know, he that's something he 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 states as fact. Yeah. Yeah, so <laughs> the conscious decision is like going along with what's already happening. You could say it's like rationalization, right? Yeah, almost. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's sort of like ego kind of owning it. Put, yeah. Putting a little line on there. But it's it's when you, when you uh, look at the Mahamudra investigations of looking at the mind, um, it's they don't always get clear about this but one of the sort of like the culmination of the process of looking at investigating the mind or looking for the mind in the Mahamudra and Dzogchen tradition is looking for the mind or the place in the mind or aspect of the mind that's deciding to look for the mind and it's identical in the Theravada tradition. The first practice in the Vipassana scheme, in the in the traditional like Buddha Gosha's presentation 
of the stages of insight meditation is looking at the distinction between mind and body. So, and he uses the example of, you know, moving your arm. It's like, where, where does it be, where, up to what point is it mental and at what point is it material? And so just looking at where's the decision maker? Where's the looker? Where's the, where is the entity that's deciding to look at whatever we're looking at? Which presumably is getting at that uh, subconscious activity that happens before we decide to move, you know, or do X, Y, and Z. Okay, so then we get what, into... At this, this level, yeah. are we... I mean, are we, when we're talking about the idea of looking at, or, or you know, whether the mind can perceive itself or whatever, are we talking here at the, the fully non-dual realm, or is this a stage before that? In the Theravada tradition? No, in, in the stuff that Alan is talking about and that we're debating here in terms of, are we talking about the the actual non-dual realization, or are we talking about something that's a more an earlier stage related to the substrate consciousness? I'm not sure I can answer your question. What do you think? <laughs> I don't know if I understand it exactly. Okay. That's all right. I I'm just was trying to figure out whether... It, it, because the, the, this seems like it's still a very dualistic sort of talking about, you know, something, seeing something. And so I just wondered if this his way of languaging it or whether it's just that this is a different stage of the progress from understanding through realization. I don't know. Okay, sorry. <laughs> no. I'm sorry. Um, so let's see. This article now gets into a presentation of these different modes, different ways of uh, accessing shamatha, which we've seen in a couple of other articles and skipped over. So, I was trying to figure out which was the best one. And I, I'm having a, I couldn't come into um, consensus with myself. I had a, an argument with my mind, which was the better one. Um, let's let's go back to. Uh, do you guys have handy the uh, excerpt from Exploring the Mind and the Taboo of Subjectivity? Or we have maybe we have this one in your hands or on your screen already and let's let's continue where we were so the next page is the use of non-ideation as the object in shamatha practice right it's just that in this presentation he, he he gives a confusing scheme but we'll talk about the confusion if one's chief aim in developing shamatha is to ascertain the nature of consciousness one might ask whether a more direct strategy could be used of not engaging within mental image or other object at all. Just cut right to the chase. Just go right to the non-dual state that Cynthia was trying to tip me off on and I was too 
dull-witted, too sunk in gross laxity to pick up on. Many Buddhist contemplatives have, in fact, trained in an alternative technique of cultivating non-conceptual attention from the outset without focusing on any other object, such as a mental image. In this method, the eyes are left open, which is interesting. Uh, he's pointing out that in most traditions, the other technique is done with the eyes closed in, in many traditions, uh, Theravadan traditions in particular. Uh, one gazes vacantly into the space ahead. And that phrase, gaze vacantly into the space in front, we read all the time and we just sort of gloss over. You know, we just look into the space. But it's actually like a really profound hint that you're actually looking at space, the space in front of you. So that's a further hint of, and I've said this before, I think, but like try looking at the space, not at the other side of the room, but bring your focal object in until it's like three feet in the space, three feet in front of you, or uh, then bring it in further to like a foot. And you might have like a practice table in front of you instead of nothing in front of you, like have a little table where you might have like a lamp or something that that helps delineate the space where you're supposed to be looking at. And it's a very different type of practice. Anyway, this space is a type of form that's mentally ap that's apprehended by mental, not sensory perception. This is an obs abstruse comment about uh, mental form. <laughs> but... Uh, Simply, he's like talking about what I was just talking about, is that we're actually looking at space. Space is not a real object. So we're having, uh, you know, like we talked before about like the breath. Um, initially, we think we're actually meditating on the physical breath, but we're meditating on the mental repl replication of the breath or the body. And here we're meditating right away on a mental image of space because we actually don't perceive space, right? So we're immediately entering into the mental realm right away, which is part of the whole technique. Uh, mentally, one completely cuts off thoughts of the past, present, and future. That's very simple. You just decide <clears throat> bringing no thoughts to mind. Uh, which is an odd way of saying it. You might say, not bringing thoughts to mind. I don't know why he would say you bring no thoughts to mind, as if no thoughts were a type of thoughts. But anyway, one lets it remain, and it, I think, is the mind. One lets the mind remain like a cloudless sky, which is the name of a really wonderful book on Mahamudra, I highly recommend, by Jongun Kontrol. Clear empty and evenly devoid of grasping onto any kind of object. Objay. In this, as in all other techniques for the development of shamatha, attentional stability and vividness are cultivated by means of M and I. The object of mindfulness is the mere absence of ideation. And with introspection, one monitors whether the mind has come under the influence of excitation or laxity. 
one must ascertain the absence of ideation as the meditative object rather than simply the mind go blank. That's an important distinction. That's not immediately clear what that means. I think it deserves some contemplation of ascertaining absence of ideation as an object. So that word ascertain again, I remember that word coming up in all this Galupa stuff. And, and I'm still not clear what they mean by that. They mean the, the following. I'll try to give a little uh, description. When we have uh, a sense perception, we talk about there being three objects. There's the object of engagement, there's the appearing object, and there's the ascertained object. The object of engagement is what we think we're looking at, the chair, the table, whatever. The appearing object is the replication of the visual, the so-called supposed external visual entity within our visual consciousness. And then the ascertained object is what do we actually experience in our consciousness. So we don't, the, the experience is, um, is an understanding or recognition of the appearing object. So it's, uh, we have appearing objects of, of, like your eyes are open, you're seeing a zillion different things in your visual field. And those are all appearing in your visual consciousness, but you're not ascertaining hardly any of them. Particularly if you're reading or listening, you're not really ascertaining any of them. But when you then pick one to look at, you're ascertaining it. So you're actually recognizing it. Does that help at all, Henrietta? Like, like a first contact? Or... Yeah, you could call it that. It's like a recognition. Or not, doesn't that mean you're talking about attention? At that, that that it's only if you actually pay attention to. You divert your attention to it, and your attention connects with it. Does it have to? You do have with, contact, Rob. Sorry. Does it have to do with mixing mixing concept into it? That comes later. With with sense perception, it's not initially mixed with concept. Right. So ascertained is before concept. Right, ascertained can be direct, non-conceptual so, so ascertainment. It's a, so it's a discrimination of sorts. It's a determination, that's right. Or, or discrimination. Or discrimination, sorry, yeah. Yeah, yep. okay. yeah that, I, that's interesting. But then when there's a referent object, that assumes that there's something actually out there. That's right, so... Um, the the uh, referent object when you look at a table is the idea of there being of tableness, mm-hmm. right? The actual object you're engaging is the thing, the nameless visual, you know, physical thing, yeah. right? But the the referent is 
always the object of a conceptual cognition. And so the referent of you looking at a table is the the mental image table or the general generally characterized phenomena table. So hopefully that helps a little bit. Oh, let's see. Rather than simply letting the mind go blank, um, the idea is to, that the mind actively engages. We actively engage intelligence throughout the exercise. And in this way, one progresses through the nine states previously explained and shamatas achieved and has the same characteristics, the big three. Um, let's see, Buddhist contemplatives raise the question whether this non-conceptual state of shamatha actually transcends conceptual structuring and modification, and whether the mere suppression of ideation is sufficient for uh, entering a totally non-conceptual state of awareness. The eminent Tibetan Buddhist contemplative, Karma Chakme, voiced the consensus of the Tibetan tradition when he asserts that Although this state may easily be mistaken for conceptually unstructured awareness, this state meaning the achievement of shamatha in particular upon the um, ascertainment of absence of ideation, it is not unmodified by ideation, for one still maintains the conceptual sense that attention is being sustained in the absence of conceptualization. One one still thinks that one is meditating on non-thought, right? And you have, you know, it's still shamatha. You haven't uh, used vipassana yet to pierce through the duality of subject and object and the belief and there being a subject and object and so forth. Once shamatha is achieved, conceptually discursive mind becomes entirely quiescent. Only occasionally isolated thoughts arise, they fade back into the awareness with no ripple, and so forth. End of story. Settling the mind in its natural state, the next phase, the next option. There's something contrived about the above state of non-conceptuality. For during the uh, training that leads to it, the mind has been artificially withdrawn from appearances and ideations been suppressed. Consciousness in which one perceives the characteristics of joy, luminosity, non-conceptuality has been conceptually isolated from its normal processes and from the appearances with which it is normally engaged. So the question can be, maybe... Is it not possible to identify the natural characteristics of consciousness in the midst of the mind's activity without having to suppress ideation? Can we do this without leaving home? After all, consciousness is obviously present and active while thoughts arise, so in principle, there seems no reason it could not be identified in the midst of thought. It's for this purpose that the technique of settling the mind in its natural state has been devised and taught within the Indo-Tibetan tradition, like all other techniques for developing shamatha, entails freeing the mind from distraction. It's the main way that this practice is characterized. Non-distraction, there's actually three qualifications. Non-distraction, 
non-modification and non-wandering. Do not wander, do not modify, do not be distracted. Um, so that the attention is not compulsively carried away by stimuli. However, this method is exceptional and that the attention is not fixed upon any object, even non-ideation. One gazes steadily into the space ahead, that phrase again, but without visually focusing on anything. Mentally, one brings the attention into the domain of the mind. So this is accomplished, I think, by bringing the focal point in closer. And then it feels like you're you're experiencing your internal world as opposed to if the focal point of your gaze is further away, you still have the sense that you're looking from within to something that's without. And as you bring the, it in closer, that sense of in and out dissolves and there's more of a sense of looking into the domain of the mind. And whenever any type of mental event is observed, a thought, image, feeling, desire, so on, one simply takes note of it without conceptually classifying it or trying to suppress or stain it, letting the mind remain at ease. One watches all manner of mental events arise and pass of their own accord without intervention of any kind, settling awareness in the present. The attention is not allowed. He does say allowed, which does imply some doing something. I thought he shouldn't have used that word <laughs> to stray in thoughts concerning the past, present, or to latch onto any object in the present. Normally when thoughts arise, one conceptually engages with the reference. It's a football team, the reference, or intentional objects of those thoughts, but in this practice one perceptually attends to the thoughts themselves without judging or evaluating them. The heart of this practice is allowing consciousness to remain in its natural state, limpid and vivid, without becoming agitated and fluctuating emotions and habitual thought patterns. While following in this practice, one alternately seeks out the consciousness that's engaged in the meditation and then releases awareness. That's an interesting statement. One alternately seeks out the consciousness that is engaging, looks at the mind that's engaging, and then releases the awareness that looks at it. So we look at awareness, our awareness, and then we let go of looking. First Panchen Lama of the 17th century says, whatever sorts of thoughts arise without suppressing, recognize where <laughs> where they're moving, where they're going to. Focus while observing the nature of those thoughts. By so doing, eventually their movement ceases and there will be stillness. The result of the practice is flawless shamatha, such that whatever the awareness, wherever the awareness is placed, it is unwaveringly present, unmoved by adventitious thoughts, and vividly clear, unsullied by laxity, lethe, or lethargy or dimness, unsullied. Is that, isn't that from Game of Thrones, the unsullied? In this way, too, the sheer clarity and cognizance of consciousness can be recognized. And I'm going to skip the, the rest of this. Um, does that description of meditation sound at all familiar? This last practice, well, the heart of yeah, the heart of, 
interesting. The heart of the practice, just one more time, quickly, yeah. the heart of the practice is allowing consciousness to remain its natural state, limited, vivid, without becoming agitated in any in emotions or thoughts. And, uh, yeah. Sorry, Henrietta. No, that's fine. <laughs> no, it's, I don't have anything to say. It sounds like Mahamudra. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. But it's not an investigation. Well, it's that's not... the fun thing here. It's, it seems like there's two different things being advised here. One is just allowing thoughts to sort of be there. You don't follow them and they settle themselves. There's that part that he's describing. And then on the other hand, this part about seeking out, it seems like he threw in a little bit of investigation there, which seemed a little bit different. Actually. Where? Which part? The next paragraph, that line where it says, while following this practice, one alternate, you know, seeks out the consciousness, basically looking at that which is, you know, doing, and then releases it. So it, it seems like that, you know, that could be viewed as two different instructions. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, it's bordering on Vipassana. So, so the seeking out the nature of the mind or the place where the mind is, is a Vipassana practice, is right. the first stage of Vipassana practice in the Mahamudra. But, but it's just looking at thoughts, looking at mind, looking at thoughts is a shamatha practice and is a Mahamudra. Uh, is is common in the Mahamudra system. The Mahamudra system uh, will present these different types of objects from a concrete object, either external or or um, internal or in between. External is like a painting or a statue or a pebble. Internal is like a light or a sound, and then in between is the breath, and then. Um, uh, uh, non-ideation or non-object, and uh, and then having the, the nature of mind as the object. And um, it also sounds a lot like the way Trungpa Rinpoche taught meditation. I thought it reminded me of that, his descriptions of meditation, this section here. So... We don't really have time, but um, we, we have to go back to, to these other presentations that we short-circuited, where he goes through the similar other, these similar other ways of achieving shamatha, uh, but with different nuances, talking about different types of mindfulness, talking about the way that it's, it's used in preparing for death and turning death, the death, experience into an enlightenment experiences and um, I don't know do, do people have like last week's reading mindfulness and the mind sciences in Buddhism handy yes <laughs> <laughs> we were so just for a few minutes we were on page 14 actually where when we stopped, and uh, the po the point he makes on that, let's see. Actually, we were on page thirteen, and there's two types of vividness: 
temporal and qualitative. Temporal is uh, able to ascertain brief fleeting events on page 13. And um, qualitative is um, events that are very subtle as opposed to gross. Interesting way of uh, sort of describing different aspects of vividness. Fast, very quick mental movements are perceptible when when you have a, a, a deep vividness or um, strong vividness as well as um, short time periods. Skipping to a couple of pages to 15. Sorry, can you tell you again which reading we're in? Yeah, it was one of the two from last week and it was called... Uh, mindfulness in the mind sciences and in Buddhism. In the source book, so which has different page numbers. I'm trying to. Oh, that's for sure. <laughs> that's <laughs> totally right. Okay, yeah. I think I found. Uh... Anyway, go ahead. I'll figure it out. The one so, with footnotes seems to correspond with the pages he's saying, but not the source book. Anyway, no, no, just. He sent us two copies. One said with footnotes. That was this week's reading. No, last... Oh, oh. I've been trying to confuse you. No, six, because I, I have numbers. Six, seven, and eight are this week's. So six. Well, not for you, but mindfulness in the mind science of Buddhism with footnotes. Oh. Oh, cool. My total mistake. Thank you. I, I have one without footnotes. I have it printed without footnotes. But, but the pages correspond because Good. the footnotes are at the very end. Right? Good. And can you just tell me what's the section name of the section you're in and then I'll be good. Naturally settled mindfulness. Okay. <clears throat> Dujum Lingpa explains that when we sustain the flow of mindfulness and mental events, recognizing from what they are without help and fear them for what they are without hope or fear, they eventually disappear. And consciousness rests rests in a spacious and loose state, naturally settled mindfulness. He describes this culmination of the shamatha practice of observing the mind. Consciousness comes to rest in its own state, and mindfulness emerges. And there's less clinging to experience. Consciousness settles in its own natural, unmodified state. In this way, you come into a state of naturally settled mindfulness that experiences soothing, gentle, clear, limpid consciousness, neither benefited nor harmed by thoughts. And you experience a remarkable sense of stillness without needing to modify, reject, or embrace anything. All subtle and coarse thoughts vanish. The ordinary mind of a sentient being disappears. <laughs> You're no longer in the world of sentient beings. Into the substrate consciousness and all appearances of oneself, others, objects disappear into the substrate. Poof. At this point, one's consciousness may become absorbed in the substrate such that mindfulness is not even aware of itself. Slipping into the spacious vacuity devoid of roving thoughts is called collapsing into empty mindfulness and this signifies reversion to a deluded state. When we arouse mindfulness once again without reifying any experiences with hopes or fears, such deluded experiences naturally vanish. Dujum Lingpa explains at this time there's a prominent sense of bliss, luminosity, non-conceptuality. 
and various visions of gods and demons may arise. These are expressions of the luminosity of the substrate consciousness. So this is called naturally luminous mindfulness. He warns it's imperative not to become absorbed in such visions or to reify them for this blocks one's path to awakening. The process of thoughts and sensory appearances dissolving into the substrate during the final process of settling the mind in its natural state closely parallels the dissolution of the ordinary mind when falling asleep. At the bottom of the page, um, a similar dissolution of appearances and the mind into the substrate naturally occurs during the dying process culminating in a temporary state of oblivion called dark attainment. So if you've ever studied the dying process, there's a, a series of phases of, uh, that we experience as we go into the great, the so-called white light of death. There's a few stages that precede that in the first of this, the, first of those stages called dark attainment. It's this odd term, the attainment of darkness. Dujum Lingpa comments that this may persist from six hours up to three days. If one is highly experienced in the practice of settling the minus natural state, one may, one may retain consciousness throughout the entire process, dying process, including finally entering the dark attainment lucidly. The initial experience of the dark attainment is the moment when Buddhists deem a person to be dead. So by entering and dwelling in it with full consciousness, one reclassifies death from being inherently unknowable to being consciously knowable. In this way, the dying process is transformed from an experience of slipping into darkness to one of clearly emerging into the light of the substrate consciousness. Cutting the... Sorry? I just wanted to ask in the, in some, so the dark attainment that he's describing is not the same as the blackout that is often described as what happens when, when an ordinary person goes into the time of death. Um, whereas there's this opportunity as described to actually reach so-called enlightenment or, you know, reach the Dharma Ta state, but then most people don't, by having not practiced, they don't do that and they fall into this blackout. But what he's describing as dark attainment sounds different than that blackout. What would you say about that? It, my understanding is that this is uh, one of three stages that precede the, the white light, the famous white light, and most beings black out at this first stage. Right. Okay. So the, yeah. Okay. That may, that's what I was thinking as well, but I hadn't heard this specific description before. It, yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it's not a, a usual way of describing it. I thought it also might be, it's not, it's not, no, but this is not a, a Galupa thing either. This is. Dujum Lingpa. Yeah. This is. Right. Lingpa, yeah. Right. Okay. So just a couple of more pages, another like five or ten minutes. Luminously cutting the rope of mindfulness, luminously realizing the substrate consciousness by the shamatha practice of taking the mind as the path. So that's the name of the course. So I'll circulate also an excerpt from this text by Dujum Lingpa that describes this metaphor of taking the mind as, as the path. And we can go through that next week. Um, it's not the culmination of the Buddhist path. 
Rather, it provides an unprecedented degree of mental equilibrium, stability, clarity with which to venture, venture into the deepest dimension of consciousness, which is pristine awareness, which, you know, to call it a consciousness is a little bit confusing because in some places he's not calling it a consciousness, the pristine awareness, and he's, you know, he says, uh, resting the mind in the natural state turns out to be the substrate consciousness. Whereas often the natural state will mean pristine awareness, wisdom. So the terminology can be confusing, but um, the deepest experience is the enlightened mind, so to speak, called pristine awareness. And I'm going to skip the quote from Churchill. And according to Dutram Link, by the way, to directly identify this pristine awareness, the ultimate ground of one's being is to first realize the emptiness of inherent nature of all phenomena. So to do the Vipassana practice, to do through the culmination of Vipassana. And uh, once one has ascertained them as the play of the space of ultimate reality, one identifies that state as the great actualization and apprehends one's own nature. I think them is like thoughts or something, probably. As a result, one naturally settles in ground awareness, which is below substrate awareness or consciousness, as the great freedom from extremes. And this is the swift path, this, the vehicle of the great perfection. is is uh, uh, accessing the substrate consciousness through shamatha and then using vipassana to break through the substrate consciousness to primordial wisdom or pristine awareness or whatever you want to call it. Dutum Lincoln explains what comes next by continuing to meditate all such experiences of a blackness, vacuity, and luminosity tainted by clinging vanish into absolute space as if one were waking up after this outer appearances are not impeded. So he's talking about that blank out Black, blackout, blank out, that was described in the shamatha attainment, where there's like this blank, blank out experience. So then one passes through that blank out and everything like reemerges, which is sort of a reenactment of dying. It's like there's this sense of dying, going through the different stages of death, and then reawakening with uh, enlightened uh, qualities, having overcome the uh, misbelief of the uh, self of, of persons and, re and phenomena and the rope of inner mindfulness and firmly maintained attention is cut then one is not bound by the restraints of good meditation one does not fall back to an ordinary state through pernicious ignorance rather ever-present translucent luminous consciousness transcending conventions of view meditation conduct shines through transcending all the good you know all the path qualities without dichotomizing self and objects such that one can say this is consciousness and that's the object the primordial self-originating mind so here we have this non-duality that Cynthia was pointing to earlier that has experiences is freed from clinging when you settle in a spaciousness in which there's no cogitation or referent of the attention, all phenomena become manifest for the power of awareness is unimpeded. Thoughts merge with their objects, they disappear as they become non-dual with the objects and they dissolve. Since not a single one has an objective referent, they are not thoughts of sentient beings. It's a very interesting description of enlightened like awareness. 
Rather, the mind has been transformed into wisdom. The power of awareness, transformed and stability is achieved. Their understand this is like water that is clear of sediment. If one has gained such realization that the practice of great perfection, following the experience of death, one may consciously experience the dissolution of the dark attainment into the clear light. So the dark attainment gives way into the clear light, but most of us pass out in dark attainment and stay passed out through the clear light. As an analogy, just as the space inside a jar is united with space outside, even without, uh, sorry, without even a speck of any appearance of a self-radiant, clear expanse arises like all pervasive space, free of contamination, like dawn breaking in the sky at this time. People are already very familiar with the ground awareness by means of the breakthrough to pristine awareness or the practice of trekcha in Tibetan, which is the first of the two formal Dzogchen practices, and who have gained confidence in this, will recognize the junction of the awareness in which they have previously trained, which is like a familiar person, and the clear light that emerges later on, i.e. through that practice. There they must hold their own ground, like a king sitting upon her throne. The number of days one remains in meditative stabilization, the clear light of the dying process corresponds to the stability and duration of one's present practice. That's a scary thought <laughs> for me. Those who have achieved stability of practice lasting an entire day and night may achieve stability lasting seven human days at death. But for those who have not entered the path, the clear light will not appear longer than the time it takes to eat a bowl of food. What a funny example. <laughs> Got to really drag out that bowl of food. <laughs> there are many practices in Tibetan Buddhism that are said to result in the realization of the nature of mind by becoming lucid during the dream state and then consciously releasing the dream and letting all appearances vanish. One may experience one's own substrate consciousness. By bringing the shama to practice, settling the mind's natural state to its culmination, one may realize the relative nature of mind by luminously accessing the substrate consciousness during the waking state. Through the practice of Vipassana, so he's listing different practices, one may realize the ultimate nature of mind by recognizing its emptiness of inherent existence. And finally, one may realize the primordial nature of mind by realizing pristine awareness. Uh, it's funny that he lists these all separately because they also sort of form a continuum. Mindfulness or like uh, supporting practices. Mindfulness plays a crucial role along this entire path until it has finally served its ultimate purpose and takes an exit as the rope of mindfulness is cut, severed. So let's stop there and uh, we'll return to that uh, reading from the earlier class and another class. Any comments, questions, suggestions, announcements, anything? Okay. I will uh, email you and uh, firm up those of us who want source books, and we'll figure out what the price is. It's going to be a little hefty. It may deter some of us because... If you have less copies made, it costs more, and it is a rather long source book. So we'll go from there. Thank you. Oh, there's a, yeah. Um, thank you, and.
let's close with our chant. By this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death, from the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings. By the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom, may the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled, may all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you, and nice to see you. Stay well, and uh, I look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you, Derek. Thank you, Derek. Bye, everybody. Thank you. Bye. Bye.